Hi there, this is Stuart McKee, host of Musicians FAQ Podcast. Please join me weekly where we have music and chat with some of Canada's hottest artists.
All right, welcome to Musicians FAQ this week. My name is Stuart McKee. I wanted to do a show this week that paid tribute to the late, great Charlie Watts, who just passed away this week, and of course also the great Rolling Stones. I've been a huge fan of the Stones all my life, as many, many people have. In fact, I can't even remember a time where there wasn't Rolling Stones. Whether I heard their songs on the radio consciously or unconsciously as a young child in the 60s and early 70s, I do vividly remember the first time I heard Honky Tonk Woman, and I do remember the first time I heard Angie on the radio back in the early 70s, and I ran out to get that 45 record right away. I had an older brother and sister who brought albums home. They got me hooked on the Stones. The live albums were the ones that really caught my attention, and then I went back and bought everything. In fact, I remember my sister bringing home Black and Blue the week it was released on vinyl. And then I brought home Some Girls, and I brought home Emotional Rescue, and I brought home Tattoo You, and every other album that came out after that. In fact, I don't think I bought a CD of The Stones until Bigger Bang came out much, much later on. I've got some great guests this week, some huge, huge Rolling Stones fans themselves, including Rob Bowman, who's a professor of music at uh, York University in Toronto, and has also been a uh, writer and a researcher and a uh, liner note writer as well. He's done many, many interviews with the Rolling Stones, and you hear some great stories that Rob has to tell. Also, guitar player, singer, songwriter Mike McDonald, who plays uh, the Stones tribute band Beggar's Banquet, uh, along with Glenn Pelche and the boys. So we sat down and chatted for a bit as well. And then we also had Maurice Raymond, who is in uh, one of the first, if not the first, uh, Rolling Stones tribute bands, at least in Canada, if not North America. And uh, we got some great stories and uh, that, that Maurice told us as well. So it's, uh, it's an exciting hour, and I hope you stay tuned for the whole show. There's some great music and there's some great chat. Welcome to Musicians FAQ. We're just chatting with Rob Bowman. So, Rob, you've got a connection with Charlie and the Stones. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I started work with the Stones. They hired me in 2002, 2003. Spent three weeks on the road with them in California and in Australia. They wanted somebody who could interview them about their art, meaning their music, rather than about sex and drugs. And this was for an autobiography they were writing, or they were writing, they wanted to put together called According to the Stones. So what they did is they had me come along and do a lot of interviews with them transcribed all the interviews and then started arranging it. So let's say we're talking about Paint It Black. Maybe Keith is talking for two paragraphs from an interview I did with him, Charlie for a paragraph from an interview I did with him, Mick for two paragraphs, maybe back to Keith. And uh, that's the way the book went. It was all in their own words and it was logically constructed, but it was all from interviews I had done, getting that material out of them. Yeah, that's awesome. So they got the byline. Of course, Jagger Richards wants uh, wood. I got in six-point type uh, at, near the beginning of the book, interviews done during 2002, 2003 by Rob Bowman. Then they listed a few other names, including Prince Rupert Lowenstein's daughter, who negotiated the contract with me and was never at an interview. It's pretty <laughs> funny. But anyway, that's the way it is. And that's the way things go at that level, I think. And so that's, of course, when I met Charlie. And then, although all of them have been very nice to me over the years since then, whenever I've had a chance to run into them, either at Stone shows or Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and when um, inductions, because I always go to those and occasionally one or another, um, you know, Ron or Keith are occasionally there. Um, you know, and Mick will come up to me and talk to me and remembers me, but Charlie is the one that I, pro- I developed most of, or, or more of a relationship with and that virtually every tour oh. since then, uh, I'll go backstage uh, during one of the shows. He'll invite me back uh, and we'll spend time together um, in his dressing room, usually talking about jazz or talking about this or that, uh, not usually talking too d- deep about the stones. But we sort of, we developed a friendship over a long period of time, which uh, so I was very grateful for. He's a very special person. Yeah, that, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think Charlie just seems to be one of those people, whether you've met him or not, I think everybody just loves the guy. And, you know, people have maybe love or hate relationships with a lot of different musicians and famous people, but he seems to be one of those people that's loved by famous people and loved by the fans. And, uh, you know, and certainly musicians appreciate him for his timekeeping and his distinctive style and sound. Oh, he's extraordinary in terms of what he does as a drummer with the Stones, but as a person, you can't help but love Charlie. And it's interesting, you know, Mick and Keith have fought like dogs and cats over the years. Right. Um, and Ronnie's certainly cl- close to both of them, but they all adore Charlie. Yeah. You know, Charlie, every night behind that drum kit, smiling and, and uh, you know, humbly, without any fuss, just delivering. 
his attitude. They can fight all they want. When it's time to record, call me, I'll be there. When you want to tour, call me, I'll be there. He never cared to be trying to run the band, deal with band politics. He never cared to do interviews. I mean, he'd occasionally do them for Modern Drummer or for this autobiography, but he was happy to let Mickey Keith get all the publicity, all the spotlight. He just thought the whole circus surrounding them was part of it and necessary, he guessed, but he could really do without it. He sure. really just liked playing. Yeah, yeah. yeah and and he was bemused by it. He used to laugh about it sometimes. I remember being in one of his suites in the Four Seasons Hotel because they, they would you know stay in Four Seasons in every city and they'd all have suites. And in one of them, I think maybe L.A., Charlie's going, he's showing me the kitchen. It's a massive kitchen with this huge island. Everything's state of the art. And he's going, this is crazy. What do I need this for? I'm just <laughs> going to have room service anyway. I mean, it, it was kind of like just shaking his head, the insanity of it all, but happy to be playing in a band he loved. Yeah. Although he loved playing jazz just as much. Was... Sure did. Well, tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Now, I saw there was a picture... I think you had posted with you guys backstage. Was that um, a show with the with the jazz band that he was with the with the big band? Or? No, that was the Stones. The third last gig he played with them. That was okay. uh, in um, Pasadena at the Rose Bowl. I can't remember the exact date, but it was a 2019 tour. It was the third last show of that tour, which who would have known ends up being the third last show Charlie ever played right. with. I think period, but certainly with the Stones. I think he didn't play any jazz gigs after that before COVID hit. That, that night was fun. I mean, it's always fun to go backstage and see him. It's always crazy getting there, even with passes. It's amazing phalanx of security. But when I got into his dressing room, I was with Chuck Lavelle. I was in that picture as well. And a friend of mine, David Peck, who's been a friend of Charlie's and Chuck's for a long time. And sitting on a couch in the dressing room was Chuck Connors. Chuck was Ch Little Richard's original drummer. Okay. And Charlie introduces me. And I'm like, whoa, this Chuck Connors this is amazing because I love Little Richard and Chuck was a great drummer. And funnily enough, we had corresponded by letter in the mid 80s. So I told, told Chuck, you know, we'd written letters to each other and he remembered them. We talked a little bit about that. And then, you know, people in the room are, there's only about six, seven people in the room and some people are having conversations to the one side. Charlie pulls me to, over, whispers in his ear, in my ear, and he goes, it's Chuck Connors, can you believe it? And I said, have you never met him? And I go, Charlie goes, no, this is my first time. He was so excited. I assumed when I walked in the room that Chuck had known him for decades, sure. but he had never met him. And it was so great because he was thrilled. This was one of his heroes. And it was also kind of cool because uh, Charlie knew I was probably the only one in the room who would care as much as he did that this was Chuck Connors. Right. Everybody else, this is some old black man in his 80s who clearly was meant to be there. He was, you know, allowed in, but they didn't really get his significance, but it was, it was a really cute moment. It says something about who Charlie was uh, and how odd he could be about those who came before him, but certainly not odd by Mick or Keith or anybody else, although he thought they were great players, right. um, but they were just, you know, his friends yeah. playing the band with them. That's right. Yeah, it, it's interesting, man. I love watching or hearing the stories about, you know, these huge super, superstars that are our heroes about meeting their heroes and the people that influence them. And, you know, the Stones are great with promoting a lot of those guys. I mean, way back even where, you know, they had an opportunity to have different people on shows and things like that. And they'd always, you know, let's let's get this guy or let's get this guy and let's let's talk about them. And, you know, Johnny Johnson being brought back for the Chuck Berry tribute by Keith in the 80s and, and things. I was like there. That. that was amazing. Oh, were you? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. that, that would have been a great show. I would have, I'm a huge Chuck Berry fan, too. Those both shows were incredible. It's obviously the best time you're ever going to see Chuck Berry in your life. And I ended up writing Johnny Johnson stuff when he's inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it's interesting that Keith happily, this is before I worked for them, first time I had interviewed Keith, uh, as soon as I phoned his manager and said, look, I'm writing the stuff about Johnny Johnson, Keith had lobbied to get Johnny in the Hall of Fame. So Keith was flying in from Europe, and I only had two days. His manager goes, he's flying in tomorrow. I'll see if he can get you, call you the next morning. And Keith called, was happy to talk. For Johnny Johnson, he'd go that extra mile. They brought Hallow Wolf on Shindig in 65. Yeah. I was nine when I saw that. Blew my mind. 
Yeah, I they turned me on to Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf. Oh, me too. I mean, and I was just watching that again recently, and I and I love that story where they, you know, who who do you want to bring on, and they bring on Howling Wolf, and you know, a lot of those guys, you know, Muddy Waters, Buddy Guy, they say, you know, without the British guys, you know, their career they would have just kind of faded off into the sunset, and these guys give them a whole second second act, and uh, and it's important. And they actually it wasn't who do you want to bring in, bring on. Well, we want Helen Wolf. It was the Stone saying, "We'll do the show only." Right. If you put Helen Wolf on. That's right. It was the only time Helen Wolf ever appeared on national TV in the United States. And it's only because, and that was Brian Jones, most, mostly yeah. insisted on that. Um, Stones were great for that. They turned you on. They turned me on. They turned hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people onto blues artists from the 40s and 50s who otherwise had largely faded from, um, you know, public consciousness and gave those people second careers and beyond what he gave to those artists they gave all of us access to this extraordinary music that we might not have had otherwise yeah and, and i feel like i mean you know charlie and keith and mick they they and brian of course they all tried to be really true to the roots whereas you know a lot of the white bands clapton and and cream and zeppelin and you know went back and did a lot of these old great tunes too but they kind of did their more contemporary versions where the stones you know, it sounded a little bit more modern, the live version of Love in Vain on the Get Your Yaya's album, but it still was true to the roots and uh, of, of the songs and the music. And, you know, well, I listened to them it. play Prodigal Son, the Reverend Robert Wilkins song on yeah. Beggar's Banquet. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, or listened to them play You Gotta Move on Stinky Fingers. Yeah, they one. absolutely uh, could and did when they wanted to play that music as close to the roots as possible. But then you look at them playing something like Stop Breaking Down, uh, Slim Harpo song uh, on Exile, or King B on their first album by Slim Harpo. And they do, those are electric things. They're not pre-war acoustic stuff, they're post-war electric. And they do those incredibly authentically as well.
love this music and of course Charlie also as I mentioned earlier deeply loved jazz I would ask him a drumming question you know we're doing this for this book right and I would ask him something about his approach to uh, you know he delays his backbeat for example I talked to him about that and so he'd go well do you mean with this band or when I play jazz and I'm like you know my mind you know I didn't show it on my face but my mind is going for Christ's sakes, you're in this mega, you know, for many people, the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And it, for you, it's the same thing. Whether he's playing a small jazz quartet for 300 people at Ronnie Scott's or for 80,000 people in this behemoth called the Rolling Stones, love them both. But it wasn't as if the Stones were that much more important. It was the way he made a living. Yeah. And he loved the Stones. It wasn't cynical. It wasn't, well, this is how I can make my cash so I can do that. It was like they're both great, but uh, one wasn't more important than the other. Yeah, yeah, that's a rare thing indeed. So you, you mentioned being nine when you saw Howling Wolf on Shindig. And I mean, I was probably in my teens, I think, when I first saw that. Um, but so when do you have a conscious memory of first hearing the Stones? Because for me, oh, absolutely. I, absolutely. I was eight years old, summer 65, satisfaction on the radio. Um you know, it was a sound unlike I had ever heard before with that distorted riff. And I, I, you know, I adored the Beatles. I started buying my first records when I was seven. Well, you know, I'd save up my allowance quarter week, 14 weeks, would give me $3.50. And then with $3.30 back then was tax. So every 14 weeks I could buy an album. Started with the Beatles, and I still love the Beatles to this day. It's not like Stones replaced them. But when I heard Satisfaction, suddenly there's this other thing yeah. that was as exciting as the Beatles, but very different. So I bought that single, Satisfaction, and from that day on, I was intense about the Rolling Stones and, you know, over time acquired every album. Um, you know, 14 weeks could buy a new album, right? So I could get the, <laughs> a couple albums that had come up before them over the next half year or so. And, uh, you know, they, and of course, the Beatles broke up, as we know, in 70. The Stones continued, plus, of course, the Stones started playing live again in 69. And so I got to see them dozens and dozens of times, supposed to, I never got to see the Beatles, unfortunately. Uh, so I won't say the Stones are more important to me than the Beatles, I love them both, but the Stones as a live band are the greatest live band I've ever seen. And I've seen everybody. Absolutely. I saw Zeppelin a lot, I saw The Who a lot, I saw Floyd a lot, I saw Cream, you know, you name it. Um, I've been lucky enough to have experienced it. And there's nothing I've ever experienced that's quite as ecstatic as being down front on a Rolling Stone show. There is nothing like it. It's, it's religious to me. You know, I've flown to Cuba, see them playing with 1.2 million people. Sarstock, I was actually on the stage in Toronto. 
behind Keith Ants uh, and at the side stage, two different places watching it. 430,000 people in that audience. You're you're on that stage. First of all, that's amazing to be on the stage with Stones, hear what it sounds like up there and be that close to them as they're doing it. But then seeing the energy from that crowd coming at them, it's an extraordinary experience. Um, I've been very lucky, been to rehearsals with them, saw seven club shows with them, uh, including the Alma Combo, but six after the Alma Combo. And uh, they've had their ups and downs. 78, they didn't play that well. 79, the Oshawa shows were terrible. There were only a few shows they played that year, but they were not great shows, except for Prodigal Son, which was a treat, both shows. Um, but they put it back together by 81, said so that week period, late 70s. And by 81, they were once again an astonishing band. And then they took the eight-year break while Keith and Mick fought what Ronnie Wood calls World War III. Yeah. And then came back in 89 with Steel's Wheels. And since then, I've toured fairly regularly these incredible, mostly stadium, occasionally hockey arena shows with a club show warming up each year that are just phenomenal. Yeah. Mind-boggling. In fact, I would say starting in 2015, they were playing the best shows maybe of their life. 2014 was good. 2015 was extraordinary. And so was 2016. And so was 2019. I didn't see 2017 in Europe, but um, it's amazing how suddenly it just kicked to another level in 2015. Hard to fathom. Next up on the show, singer-guitar player Mike McDonald from the Stones tribute band Beggar's Banquet. It was obviously a big day this week with Charlie Watts passing and just you know, wanted to get your thoughts on that. You guys have been doing the Stones tribute. And I mean, obviously, as a musician in general, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people, guitar players especially, would probably have, uh, you know, some thoughts on on the Stones and on Charlie and and how they affected you. Um, did you read the uh, Keith Richards book, Life? I did, yeah. Yeah. Well, in that book, he mentions Charlie as his cloud. Yeah. You know, that was the guy in it. And, and, you're a guitar player. I see the telly headstock behind yeah, you. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you know, when you've got somebody that lays down a groove that all you can do is, all you have to do is float on top. Well, that was the relationship that Keith and Charlie had, obviously. Charlie, um, uh, if I could point out a few things, like he had the very unique, uh, the expression is fat back style like the early New Orleans drummers, players would have this thing called a fat back. And it's uh, b- like backwards beats. If you think right. about uh, in, it's only rock and roll. If you listen to the intro, it's yeah. backwards. Yeah. It's not, not normal. But, you know, if you're a musician, you hear it. A normal person wouldn't even notice the difference. But then it turns around in the intro. Um, stuff like that. Very, very clever unique styles uh, whereas when where uh, his hand would be in the air when it should be hitting the hi-hat kind of thing yeah. in reverse the uh, there's another one get off of my cloud very very unique drum signature in the intro and he carries that drum signature all the way through um i've been watching a lot of the interviews uh, and testimonies over the last couple of days as well and pointing out like he was very humble, and yet uh, he he knew how to put on a show. He could twirl his sticks, he could get dressed up, do this, do that. But he was the quiet stone. When did Go you? Ahead. I mean, when did you first start? When was your first conscious memory of hearing the Stones? That was on the radio. Was it you know through a friend records? On the radio. Yeah. My I'm I'm a different. I'm their generation, so it's kind of shaky for me because uh oh, you know. My number's almost up here. Um, it's, Hopefully it's, not. Yeah, well, the reality check, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the big chill, as they call it. Um, I remember the first album. The very, very beginning. Um, I was, uh, let's see, it was about 13 or 14 when their first album came out. And I remember the songs on that. Uh, uh, songs like uh, the Pain in My Heart. Uh, my 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 spider to the fly remember that one? Oh, i love that one we we covered that years ago in a band i was in here yeah. uh down the road a bit uh, which was a chuck berry tune they covered well, as you know they covered a lot of chuck berry stuff and early rock and roll tunes yeah. on the first couple of albums until they got smartened up and started writing 
Yeah, a lot of Chuck, um, a lot of blues. Oh yeah, yeah. Interestingly, too, back in the day, that was the the, the style was to start and speed up. And if you listen to the records, you hear every one of those records, every one of those songs. It starts at one tempo and just continually speeds up. And, you know, it was a different time back then. Um, very sped. Anyways, back to Charlie. He just uh, he knew how to put that snare right in the middle of, of the pocket. And he could pull it back and he could put it forward. Oops. You know, stuff like that. Drummers like that are far and few between. So it's always nice to meet a player who can do that. And it was good that have Charlie gave that to the world, to players, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So when did, uh, I mean, Beggar's Banquet, I think it's been around for, for a while. I seem to have a memory of seeing uh, Glenn with that band back in the eighties at the Cornet Hotel. Um, when did you join with them? Well, Beggar's Banquet is, was um, sort of a, a new rendition. Glenn was in a Stones band for quite a while. Sticky Fingers. Sticky Fingers, that's what it yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. I wound, we wound up doing, uh, I was at a CCR show at the time, and I wound up doing double bills with them. Oh, really? Back okay, cool. Yeah. And then I met Glenn uh, at Bobby O'Brien's one night, and uh, we just started chatting. and said, well, yeah, let's do it. Let's try it. So I went and talked to Kevin Doyle at the Boathouse, and boom, there we were. We were starting, we were doing shows, and it's, uh, we're still doing, unfortunately, not, not that many. Um, again, COVID has really put a kibosh on all of that. Yeah, sure. Uh, but, you know, I, I, wonder, I wonder if you'll be getting some calls over the next little while now. I mean, you know, COVID permitting and, and how the club owners work around it. I mean, I know we only have a limited time for outdoor shows and it seems to be most of the shows we're seeing these days are, are the outdoor controlled festivals like the best of all or patio shows, you know, um, who knows what's around the corner. But uh, I mean, for me, it was interesting. We saw them at Ritz stadium in 81. That was the first time. And I want to kind of get your sort of thoughts on when you first saw them, but the group of guys that I saw them with were all still alive and healthy and, uh, you know, well into our fifties, but, um, you know, I'm conscious of the fact that this next month will be the 40th anniversary of that show. And we'd been talking about it for the last couple of months about, you know, getting together to try to see the stones this year, or maybe getting a cover, a tribute band, uh, to play at a private party, that sort of thing. So when, uh, what was the first stone show that you, uh, that you saw? Very well. The first one, I only saw one, and that was in um, Jesus. That would have been about ten years ago in Toronto, and uh, you know what? I can't remember the title of the tour. Um, and that that one particular was kind of neat because they had the uh, the main stage, and then I had a secondary stage out in the center of the uh, arena, right. where they just literally came up out of the ground and did like a club style. Um, they did, geez, I think it was about seven or eight songs, basically off their old record, their very old records, which I found very impressive. Oddly enough, and people, people surrounding me, I had to break up a fight actually. To, people started dancing, and other people were telling them to sit down. And I'm going, it's the Rolling Stones. Just leave, leave everybody alone. Um, I, I was really quite impressed. It's my first and only time seeing them. But holy smokes, they were good. And there, there wasn't really, you know, flash pots or, no. you know, costumes like Kiss or any of that stuff. It was just the vibe in the room that day. They put out a lot of energy. Yeah. And, you know, when, when uh, they say that Mick is the, is the, uh, the best front man, they, they mean it. They really do. Yeah, those guys, I mean, I, they're one of those rare bands that actually sounds better than the record and, um you know and it, and it's a completely different experience when you're going to see them in concert and yeah i mean live stones are, there's there's nothing like it and the catalog of songs is just ridiculous so i mean you know yeah. even if you know you can't really say they didn't play any good songs even if they don't play you know everybody's got a few sort of classic chestnuts that they like to see them pull out um from the back catalog and play but uh do you have a you know hand is there a favorite stone song or a favorite stones album for you um I would say, I'd have to say no. I'd sort of pick on, you know, I just, there's songs, obviously, that stick out. 
that I remember when Satisfaction was on the radio. So I go, I, go, I just go way, way back in that in that regard. Um, Sympathy for a Devil is a hoot to play, just because of the arrangements. Um, you ever hear them do Pain in My Heart, which is a I... lovely old song. Yeah, I don't think um, I have. And I was Noel Redding. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it goes way, way back. It just R&B, which is what they initially wanted to be. Right. Uh, they just wanted to be a, a blues band, as Mick would, uh, or uh, Keith wrote in his book. Uh, just the, the more I think about it, it's funny when I do a song list, I'll sit down and I'll start writing out the list and I can't remember any of the tunes. <laughs> and, then, and then they sort of pop up one by one and always in a different order. So when I'm writing a set list, I never know how to write it because they're all so good. Yeah. Um, right well, they're stationary in your brain. Like they're there forever. Do they continue at this point? I mean, I know Steve Jordan's booked to play some shows for them. Um, you know, and as we talked about uh, the COVID situation. So where do you kind of see, do you see that there's a chance that they're going to continue without Charlie? I mean, being such an integral part of the band. Oh, they'll, they'll continue. Um, I mean, put yourself in that situation. You got to, you have an obligation to your fans, the crew, and, you know, it's pointed out if, if you've been in a band, you know that there's a lot of people behind the stage yeah. that are working. All these people are employed. They're all booked uh, hotels, flights, and so on and so forth. It's a, it's a monumental affair. I mean, we're talking in terms of value, there's millions of dollars worth of commitments there that have to be seen through. Right. Uh, they, they couldn't pull the plug now. And from their point of view, at least if I were in that situation, I go, let's do this one for Charlie. Yeah. Let's play.
Hello, this is Mason McKee, and you are listening to Musicians FAQ on CKMS 102.7 Radio Waterloo with my dad, Stuart McKee. So I'm chatting with Maurice Raymond from the Blushing Brides this morning, and we're chatting a little bit about uh, Charlie Watts and the Stones and, and what they meant to you and uh, when you first sort of discovered Charlie as a drummer. And um, I discovered Charlie Watts when I was seven years old watching the Ed Sullivan show with my sister um, uh, begrudgingly because uh, I had seen the Beatles and I thought they were all right. But then when I saw the Rolling Stones, it was a completely different. Um, uh, I was overwhelmed by their arrogance and their uh, je ne sais quoi. There was just something about them that smelled right to me. And Charlie always, I always found Charlie a bit of an enigma because he didn't seem to fit with the rest of the lads. You know, Brian Jones was, uh, was uh, you know, the pretty boy of the band originally. Jagger was this just odd-looking, uh, androgynous front man with the scruffy hair. Keith was the dopey with the big ears. And Bill Wyman, very stoic, but dark. There was a darkness. Charlie just seemed to be, uh, he always had this look on his face that I thought was a, what am I doing here? I don't know. Why am I here? Because, of course, Charlie was always a jazz uh, aficionado. And I think that there are stories of him talking about how he learned the blues living at that house with Mick and Keith, uh, that rundown, um, you know, band house that a lot of us have experienced if we've been in bands before where you all get together and you've got that house where you all hang out and smoke dope and you know, whatever, drink beer. And, and they listened over and over to Jimmy, Jimmy Reeves and, uh, 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 you know, a lot of the blue stuff, Howlin' Wolf and things like that. And Charlie developed a, apparently a, a love of it through that. And I read an interesting article about Charlie and how he um, really learned to play the blues right. Whereas a lot of, it's very funny because a lot of white guys think that we play the blues but we play it without the breath. There's things sort of like sloppy, emotional. Charlie plays it with that authenticity, which leads the Stones to be able to sound far more authentic than most. You know, when you go to your Sunday jams and the guys are playing, yeah. they're like perfect. And they're, they're, there's, it lacks, uh, I don't know, the... Uh, the humidity of the South, as it were. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's interesting. I was talking to Rob Bowman a couple of days ago, uh, and we were both kind of talking about that too. I, I thought there's, you know, there's a difference. You have Cream, who did a lot of blues tunes. You had Zeppelin, that did a lot of blues tunes, a lot of these white bands. But there was, and the, that was my word, it was just, there was this authenticity with the Stones when they did it, and they stayed right. true to the roots. Now, I mean, their versions might have been more rock, but they stayed true to the to the roots of the songs, and there was just yeah. something really vibrant about the way that they did it. Well, the interesting thing about the Stones, I think, is that they, were, they weren't the most accomplished musicians. And it, putting that into, into context, neither were the blues cats that they were emulating. Right. You know, if you listen to some of those guys that they're going, oh, he's brilliant and all that. Well, he's actually very sloppy. Amp, 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 ram, ram, now, man. His yeah. time is weird. It's all emotion yeah. as opposed to technique. Whereas Clapton was brilliant with cream and Ginger Baker and, um, you know, uh, Jack Bruce. These guys were phenomenal players. But I think what they lacked was, um, I, I hate to say this because I know I'm going to get, you know, just attacked left and right all over. But they, they lacked the sloppiness of the blues. And the Stones kind of had that arrogant, yeah, it is the way it is, you know, adding that extra bar in and doing it sort of haphazardly. You weren't sure if they were going to get through it. You were like, yeah. eh, you know, Little Red Rooster. You were like, to this day, trying to play Little Red Rooster with that extra uh, bar in there is is maddening. Nobody seems to get it. And if you get it, you've stumbled into it. And then it sounds authentic. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's raw. It's real. I mean, yeah. I, I had the privilege of seeing John Lee Hooker years ago. And yeah, I mean, he's got a very 
very ragged style of playing. And it was bizarre the first time I heard him and saw him play. But, it, I mean, it's just so deep. I mean, you know, you feel like he's from, from the just rose out of the earth himself. I mean, it's old as time. Yeah, you could smell the tobacco uh, and 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 the in the south. You know, you can smell the cooking. You can smell, um, you can feel the humidity on your body. You could feel the heat, and the it's. I hate to use the term, but it's you could feel the oppression. Yeah, when they play because the, it was a struggle. They were struggling to get out so much that you know we would never experience. We have no idea. The Stones tried to capture it, and what they did was create this unique style. And, I mean, some of their early recordings are, you know, you listen, you go, how did they get a deal? Yeah. What? (laughs) So, you know, it was, was, to me, it was great. But to a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of, there's that old uh, sort of axiom of you either hate the Stones or love the Stones. And a lot of musicians hated the Stones. And to this day, they'll go, well, they're not really good musicians. You're a little sloppy. And a lot of people slagged Charlie. Said that Charlie wasn't technically a great drummer. Well, one, Charlie was a self-taught guy who loved jazz, who, you know, hung out with Alexis Corner and all those blues cats in, in England and sort of stumbled into the Stones. As Charlie said, we thought it was going to last two weeks, yeah. you know, really. So, it, it, and now it's 30 years later, or 50 years later, and he's still doing it. So over that period, they developed this really unique style, especially Charlie, who, you know, he has that, you know, lifting the hand off the hi-hat to emphasize the snare. Nobody does that. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I, I never, when I first saw it, I thought, does he have like a, a tick? Is that like some kind of drumming Tourette <laughs> syndrome or what is that? But there's a method to his madness. Yeah. Um, and he kind of breathes in and out of the music. He's not on top of the beat. He's not behind the beat. He's not ahead of the beat. He sort of flows like a river along with Keith and, and Mick and, and the rest of the band, um, which... That's what makes them unique. That was, you know, we used to have a saying in the Blushing Prides, calculated chaos, which was you were always on the verge of having a train wreck. And yet if you could come out at the other end and make it, you know, sort of close it off and everything end properly, sort of sloppy, but proper, then you've, you've succeeded in doing that. And the stones always... Always, every time I listen to any kind of live recording, I'm always holding on and waiting for the catastrophe to happen, yeah, which yeah. is, and I've heard many because we've got lots of bootlegs through Paul Martin, who was one of the original collectors of bootlegs. I met him when I met him in 1978, he had over a hundred Rolling Stones bootlegs, which wow. was, you know, you, you could, you, he was, you know, shows from 1967 and recordings from, Obviously, Bed Spring Symphony and, you know, Brussels Affair, which are our Bibles. Nice, incredible. So, I mean, 1978, and that was, now, was that roughly when the Blushing Bride started? I mean, you guys have been the longest, one of the longest running or the longest running Stones uh, tribute bands in Canada. Oh, boy. Yeah. We're, so there was Beatlemania. There was a couple of bands in the States, Crystal Ship, I guess. 1978, I met Paul Martin. He came to Montreal stumbled into a little club I was playing with. I was in a band called Jade. We did a bunch of covers and stuff. We did a lot of stones, but um, he walked up to me and said, Hey, I want to make a band with you with with no intention of being a stones band whatsoever. Just happened. He looked like Keith and I looked like Mick. When we started to play stones music, obviously they were huge influence on us as well as Jay Giles and, you know, James Brown and David Bowie and all kinds of bands. But, the Stones obviously were in the forefront because Paul was an aficionado and I was a huge fan of the Stones. And it just kind of stumbled into it. We played a bunch of shows and because we played the Stones so well and really close to what they did because we had the bootlegs to study, hmm. we played nasty. Like if you, from 1968 until 1975, 
to us was the heyday of the Stones. And that was the Jimmy Miller recordings. And that was the 1972 tour, US tour, 1973 tour, European tour. To us is the consummate Rolling Stones tour because they had just played across the United States, uh, you know, and, and really ground out the band. They, 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 they took all the sharp edges off. And when they got to Europe, it was ridiculous, like with Mick Taylor soaring over Keith's rhythm. And it was, you know, Bed Spring Symphony and Brussels Affair is, is, is the shit. Can I yeah. say shit? Yes. Yeah. Um, but we formed in 1979. I met him in 78. And in 79, I went out on the road with him. And we did a show in the United States in Syracuse, New York, at a place called U.S. Sam's or Uncle Sam's, I forget. And we opened the show with Brown Sugar and there was a bunch of agents there. And the agents started going, oh, it's a Stones band. Can... Uh, so we went, well, we're not a Stones band. We were playing original music. We were writing our own stuff. We wanted to get a record deal. and But they kept pushing that. Oh, well, we, we can get you gigs and play Stones music, play the Stones. And of course, it was an easy out for us because we did it so well. It was easy to go, well, they love us. Oh, let's keep doing it. You know, the ego comes into play. Yeah. It becomes, then your mind, then you, you, it starts to play on you. Now you start, it starts to feed the beast. So we started playing in New England and we had sellout shows for, you know, everywhere. There are people scalping tickets to see us for the, one of the first times we played just outside of Boston in Lowell, Massachusetts. Here's a bunch of kids from Canada and we're get there in the van, like, hey, right on, you know, from Canada. And there's guys out there going, hey, 25 bucks, flesh and fries, rolling stones, man. And we're like, what's going on here? Crazy. So it turned into a weird monster. Now, the thing that changed was there was an article in Boston Globe that said, stones, clones invade New England. And the term clone band was dubbed from that article that's where it came from so if you're saying are the blushing brides the first clone band or tribute band we were one of them but that article translated into agents and you know booking agents a notch below child molester on the yeah. dirtbag scale <laughs> they grabbed onto clone band and then all hell break, broke loose then there was you know, clones of this, clones of that, police, whatever was hot, you had a clone of. Yeah. So we got so fed up that by, you know, and, and of course we put out a record. We didn't have a hit song. We had a minor hit with what you're talking about. We got signed to RCA, a lot of good stuff. But the money playing Stones as a verse to struggling as an original act uh made it again easy to lean back that way and go uh you know and you had to eat and if you don't have a hit record you know as well as i do yeah. you know the record company's not going to hold it. anyways we had internal problems the band fought about different direction we broke up got back together and when we got back together we really couldn't get another record deal so we decided let's just play stones so really the blushing brides in 1983 became an official Rolling Stones tribute band. And we changed it from clone to tribute in 1983 because we were sick of hearing, they're a clone band, they're a clone band. And at clone bands in time, we were, they, first of all, we're not a clone band. We play their music, but we play it our own way. The yeah. same way the Stones play the blues yeah. and it comes out their own special way. We play the Rolling Stones our own way and it comes out our special way, as opposed to what you see today in a lot of the tribute bands, which again, they, they took the, the, the sort of axiom that we, we applied to us. We are a tribute to it. Well, most bands are not tributes. They're just weird vaudevillian guys wearing wigs, playing note for note. You know, there's no emotion. There's no, there's no real to it because you're not giving any of yourself to it. So we, now this whole tribute scene has turned in again to a freak show. So we're sort of an aberration in it. Now we're the outside looking in because we play it our own way and agents will go, well, uh, you know, you don't have a guy who looks like Bill Wyman. I don't know. 
You know, I don't know. Where's your Bill Wyman? And then there was always the thing about, you know, Charlie, who Doug English used to play drums for us. Doug English from Gatto from 1983 until 19, you know, almost 1990. Doug English. Doug was brilliant at, at taking Charlie and emulating Charlie and adding to Charlie. So having Doug Inglis, the late Doug Inglis, may he rest in peace, great, great soul, uh, just died recently. Um, far too soon, by the way. Um, he, he, he was one of the cats. We always had great drummers. And there was Doug, and then there was Sasha Tukach, who played with Platinum Blonde for many years. And Sasha took Charlie and added a little bit to him. So Charlie has influenced a bunch of drummers. I have a drummer down in the States, Paul DeWicke, brilliant drummer. Again, there's the, they all take little bits of what Charlie, he's like the most unique drummer in rock music. Like they all talk about Bonham and they talk about, you know, uh, Neil Peart and all the, yes, they're all brilliant technicians and they all play stuff, but there's something about the feel of Charlie Watts that nobody really can copy. It's impossible because you had to have been Charlie Watts. Just like the Blushing Brides could never copy the Rolling Stones exactly. I'm not Mick Jagger and my guitar player is not Keith Richards and our drummer is not Charlie Watts. But we take the essence of what they do and then make it our own. So that's what the Blushing Brides do. You'll never see me wearing a wig or a push-up bra on stage. Well, maybe the push-up bra, but I wear that because yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, well, it's interesting. I mean, I saw you guys back in the early 80s. I actually have unveiled on vinyl somewhere in this uh, monstrous collection of old records behind Thank me. you. Thank uh, you yeah. very much. It, and funny enough, at, at Binghamton Park uh, Roller Rink, which is exactly where I saw John Lee Hooker and Willie Dixon. And, yeah, uh, great fan. Yeah. Charlie's good tonight, isn't Thank you for listening to Musicians FAQ Podcast with your host, Stuart McKee. We're here every week with great Canadian musical artists 